Hey podcast listeners, Jim Siegler here for Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and the history that comes with it. For the listeners out there whose neurology board exams are coming up, or for those of you who are really just interested in knowing what myotonia is and what causes it, this episode is for you. Over the next 20 minutes or so in today's program, we'll cover the definition of myotonia, what it is that patients may complain about historically that should raise your suspicion for myotonia, what it looks like clinically, the EMG features, everybody kind of knows that dive bomber sound, but there are other findings as well, the causes of myotonia, how you might build a differential for myotonia based on age, organ dysfunction, and associated symptoms, and lastly, the treatment options that exist for patients with myotonic dystrophy. So a lot of interesting stuff and lots of high-yield content coming your way. Let's get right to it. First, what is myotonia? Well, simply put, myotonia is difficulty relaxing a muscle after voluntary contraction. This is Dr. Noah Levinson. He's been on the show before. Dr. Levinson is now a neuromuscular fellow at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and certainly more of an authority on this topic than I am. So this is something you're not going to see very often as an internist or a neurologist, but when you do, you should recognize it immediately. Oftentimes, it's a doorknob diagnosis that you can actually make the first time you meet the patient in your office. The reason for that, a really common form of myotonia is grip myotonia, where a patient has difficulty relaxing their hand after a handshake. So if they don't let go of your hand during that first handshake, they might actually have myotonia. It can actually affect any skeletal muscle, though. So the eyes, the jaw, the arms, or the legs, or any combination of those can be affected. Commonly, we'll also clinically test for myotonia with forced eye closure. So we ask the patients to close their eyes forcefully for a few seconds and then open them. And in patients with clinical myotonia, their eyelids will open very slowly. That relaxation process can be brief, only taking a second or two, or it can actually last up to a minute or two. And oftentimes, myotonia improves with repeated attempts, which is a phenomenon we call warm-up. To distinguish it from the fatigability we see in neuromuscular junction disease. That's right. So in contrast to that, if repeated contraction and relaxation makes it more difficult to relax the muscles, that's a related but a different phenomenon that we call paramyotonia. And usually these patients are going to come in complaining of stiffness after exercise. And in the clinic, the easiest way to test that is to have the patient blink several times. What usually will happen is after a few blinks, the patient will start to have trouble opening their eyes. Now, you might be asking yourself, how can I distinguish this type of stiffness from something more routine, like a muscle spasm or just getting old? And one important clinical differentiator is that the stiffness, the myotonia that you see in clinical myotonia is actually painless, so it shouldn't hurt when that muscle is contracting. Another really unique finding on exam that'll be helpful is something called percussion myotonia. So the underlying principle of delayed muscle relaxation is the exact same, but it's elicited in a different manner. So in this case, if you tap on the muscle with your reflex hammer, you should see the belly of the muscle tense up for a few seconds and then slowly relax down. And commonly, we're going to check that either on the abductor pollicis brevis muscle, or you can also check it on the tongue. Percussion myotonia, I guess you can elicit with any kind of myotonic disorder. When I test for it, like how often am I going to find it? Well, I'd, I'd say it's something that's it's really nice to see when you do see it, but it's actually not particularly common. It's more common in one particular disorder called myotonic dystrophy type 1, um, but you, you can see it in other disorders too. But I'd say it's something that's useful when you find it, but otherwise I wouldn't hang your hat on it. So specific, but not necessarily sensitive. Yeah, that's right. So far, Dr. Levinson and I have been discussing clinical myotonia, 
meaning findings that you'd uncover on a physical exam. But the electrophysiologic correlate to this on EMG are pretty classic findings, and they're worth talking about a bit. They're called myotonic discharges. Electrical myotonia. And myotonic discharges are high-frequency, repetitive electrical discharges that spontaneously either increase or decrease in frequency. They either wax and wane. And that change in frequency gives it its classic dive bomber sound. I've got a sound effect for that. Oh, you do? (laughs) Uh, Part of being a good neuromuscular doctor is being able to imitate all the EMG noises. So Nice. Uh, So these discharges, they represent rapid and spontaneous depolarization of the muscle membrane due to insufficient repolarization after that initial electrical depolarization. And we'll talk more about that later. There are a few other subtle findings on EMG in these patients, but that's probably a little too dense for this program. Okay. So you've gotten the EMG and you're really reassured you you find that dive bomber kind of sound effect and your patient who's come in with weakness and they've come with painless stiffness. Uh, Maybe they do have clinical myotonia. Often, this may not be the first step in your diagnostic algorithm, but now you have some new information. What kinds of diagnoses do you entertain when you start to see myotonia or you suspect myotonia? Yeah, that's a great question. I think finding convincing evidence of clinical myotonia on exam or myotonic discharges on EMG can be incredibly helpful because really, at the end of the day, there just aren't that many diseases that cause myotonia. Um, If you have both clinical myotonia and electrographic myotonia, then you should start thinking about myotonic dystrophy type 1 and type 2, both of which are relatively common autosomal dominant conditions. Um, And you should also be thinking about myotonia congenita. If you have clinical paramyotonia and electrographic myotonia, you should be thinking about some other disorders like hyperkalemic periodic paralysis and paramyotonia congenita. And then if you happen to come across a patient with electrical myotonia without clinical myotonia, Pompe's disease should jump to mind. Although, actually, electrical myotonia can be seen rarely in isolation in any severe muscle or nerve disease. Before we get into all the individual diseases and their characteristics, it's important to emphasize that, at its heart, the underlying pathophysiology of myotonia is a problem with the repolarization after muscle contraction. And so that means that for the most part, these disorders are going to be an inherited channelopathy that's either affecting a chloride, a sodium, or a potassium channel. So with that being said, now that you have a better understanding of what myotonia is, what it looks like, and the related symptoms of paramyotonia, Dr. Levinson and I moved on to some of the major conditions that manifest with myotonia, beginning with type 1 myotonic dystrophy. Type 1 myotonic dystrophy is a triplet repeat disorder that affects the DMPK gene on chromosome 19Q. And patients who have 50 or more expansions uh, will express the phenotype of that disorder. This is the most common muscular dystrophy of adulthood. There's about 1 in 8,000 people affected. Type 1 myotonic dystrophy is also one of the most variable muscular dystrophies. There's a huge variation in when the symptoms will present, which can happen at birth or in adulthood. And it can either have just one organ affected, the muscle, or there can be multiple organ systems involved. And like other triplet repeat disorders, a type 1 myotonic dystrophy is characterized by anticipation, which, as most of you probably know, means that when there are more repeats, that leads to a more severe phenotype at an earlier age of onset. So how might one clinically or electrographically distinguish type 1 myotonic dystrophy from type 2 myotonic dystrophy? 
Yeah, well, there's actually quite a big difference uh, symptomatically between type 1 and type 2 myotonic dystrophy patients. Clinically, patients with type 2 myotonic dystrophy, which is also called progressive myotonic myopathy, have a lot more proximal muscle involvement, which the name would suggest. And there's also more muscle pain, which isn't related to that stiffness problem. And unlike type 1 myotonic dystrophy, the onset of symptoms in type 2 myotonic dystrophy they characteristically happen kind of in the young adulthood period, so kind of the third or the fourth decade of life. Additionally, type 2 myotonic dystrophy is unique from its type 1 variant in that they bear no genetic resemblance at all. You'd think that maybe these two conditions could be like the variants of Huntington's disease, which is also a triplet repeat disorder that could manifest at a later age or with milder deficits when there are fewer triplet repeats. However, this is absolutely not the case for type 1 and type 2 myotonic dystrophy. Now, jumping back into the genetics of type 2 myotonic dystrophy, it's similar but not quite the same. It's a tetranucleotide repeat disorder, and it affects chromosome 3Q. Specifically, the zinc finger protein 9, a.k.a. the CNBP gene. And recall that type 1 myotonic dystrophy is caused by a mutated DMPK gene on chromosome 19Q. Um, and the repeats can range from 75 to over 10,000 copies. But unlike type 1 myotonic dystrophy, the number of repeats doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be more severe disease. So one thing that, that I was surprised to, to learn is that in patients who have type 2 myotonic dystrophy, proximal myotonic myopathy, they may not have clinical myotonia. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you should definitely be thinking of these conditions when you see both clinical and electrical myotonia. But there is going to be a small group of patients with type 2 myotonic dystrophy, about 25% that might not even have clinical myotonia. So it's, it's not the most specific finding in that disorder. And, you know, like I mentioned before, there is one other, there's a third condition where you'll see both clinical and electrographic myotonia that's worth mentioning, and that's myotonia congenita. That's a dominant or recessive chloride channelopathy. You can see that in children and adolescents, and they might actually appear normal. They're often able to play sports and compete with their classmates um, after a, a sufficient warm-up period. Before that warm-up, though, they might feel weak or even like look clumsy when they're playing. It can be a really subtle syndrome, and the kids oftentimes will look really strong due to that extra muscle bulk they've been building up from the sustained muscle activity due to that chord. And this feature, yes, the extra muscle bulk that you see in patients who have myotonia congenita, it's much more specific to this congenital form than to any of the other forms of myotonia. Sometimes these kids often look a lot like bodybuilders. Okay, so those were the main conditions where you might see clinical and or electrographic myotonia. But there are some related neurologic conditions that can present with similar symptoms, like weakness and stiffness on exam. But you might see paramyotonia. And then on the EMG, that's when you'll find the electrical myotonia. Yeah, so we'd also mention some conditions where you see the clinical paramyotonia and the electrical myotonia. The main ones to think about are hyperkalemic periodic paralysis and paramyotonia congenita. And clinically, these diseases are really distinct. They both manifest with periodic attacks of weakness. And because that's such a unique clinical complaint, um, it can be really useful as a clinical history launch point for thinking about these diseases. These patients typically will have intermittent bouts of diffuse muscle weakness. Um, it can happen as few as once a week, or it can happen as often as once a day. Um, but they should be relatively short-lasting, maybe minutes or hours, and they shouldn't be you know, totally disabling. And both hyperkalemic periodic paralysis and paramyotonia congenita are due to a mutation in a sodium channel. This one is SCN4A. 
And the exacerbations of weakness in either of the conditions can actually be triggered by cold temperatures. And we also talked about Pompe disease as one of those kind of mimickers of myotonia. How does that fit into all this? Yeah, we should definitely briefly touch on Pompe's disease too. So Pompe's disease, it's also called acid maltase deficiency, is a rare autosomal recessive condition. In the infantile form, the newborns are going to show signs of skeletal muscle weakness. They'll also have the cardiomegaly and they'll have failure to thrive. But there's also importantly a later onset form in adulthood where the adults are going to lack the heart problems, but they might have a similar pattern of appendicular weakness and they can also get pretty severe shortness of breath as well. And like I mentioned before, you can see the evidence of electrical myotonia in that condition too. So those are all the major myotonic syndromes that you need to know as kind of a general neurologist, or if you're about to take your neurology boards coming up this summer. But given how common that type 1 and type 2 myotonic dystrophy are, I also want to talk for a minute about the kind of non-neurologic manifestations of these two conditions. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. I'm glad you asked that question, Jim, because I think some of the other features of myotonic dystrophy can sometimes key you into that being the diagnosis. So generally, myotonic dystrophy is thought to be caused by a problem with toxic RNA that prevents proper transcription of mRNA into proteins. And since there's a global dysfunction in that transcription into protein, it makes sense that this would be a true multi-organ disease. Um, So for type 1 myotonic dystrophy, just going from head to toe here, cataracts, ptosis, and frontal balding are really classic facial findings. The cataracts are oftentimes going to manifest before the age of 50, which would be unusual for the average person. Um, And sometimes actually those can be the only sign of type 1 myotonic dystrophy in milder forms of the disease. Now, moving downwards, cardiac abnormalities are also incredibly common. And actually, in fact, as many as 90% of the patients are going to have first-degree AV block or some other conduction abnormality. And most patients who survive into their 40s or later, they'll ultimately require a pacemaker or defibrillator. Respiratory problems are also quite common in type 1 myotonic dystrophy, and that's not just related to the cardiac issues. Um, They also have issues with excessive daytime sleepiness which it's not entirely clear why that's the case. It might just be due to suboptimal pulmonary function. That's a pretty common complaint in these patients too. Smooth muscle involvement is also common, so it's not just skeletal muscle, um, and that can lead to problems with dysphagia and aspiration pneumonia. You can also get constipation from delayed gastric motility. For that same reason, patients with type 1 myotonic dystrophy are at a higher risk of cholestasis and gallstones. So because of like all these myriad complications and multi-system dysfunction, it stands to reason that these patients are going to present to other medical providers, not to neurologists for necessarily weakness. What's your understanding of, of how these patients come to clinical attention? Can they come to clinical attention because of heart block or because of cholestasis or because of you know delayed gastric motility or like what 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 eventually brings them to attention? Yeah, I've I've never seen that actually happen. I think because all of these other multi-organ issues are relatively common, I think you know, a patient presenting just with gallstones or just with cataracts isn't going to be enough to raise an individual clinician's index of suspicion to think about this. So really, I think it is the neurologist that's able to kind of bring everything together. And that that's actually been my experience. I actually just diagnosed a type 1 myotonic dystrophy patient in the NICU. And, the, you know, our diagnosis was based on the physical exam with the classic features of weakness, frontal balding, Um, temporal wasting and the weakness. And then we also saw the electrical myotonia on the EMG. And then actually looking back through his chart afterwards, we were able to connect almost all of his other medical conditions to his type 1 myotonic dystrophy. He had diabetes at a very young age, and there wasn't a family history for that. 
he had cataracts, and he had actually had previously documented atrial fibrillation and conduction problems that, that no one had really connected before. So really it was finding that last key piece and putting the myotonic dystrophy in the picture that kind of explained everything else that was going on with him. That's crazy. You got to feel really proud of yourself for making that diagnosis when so many other clinicians who've seen the patient who've like made the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation and conduction block and have physically examined the patient, identified the frontal balding, and they just can't put those pieces together. But when you do the EMG, you really, you really make that diagnosis. Yeah, it was great. And I, I know the patient and the family actually really appreciated getting kind of putting a label on everything that had been going on with the patient so far. So we went head to toe discussing some of the common non-neurologic manifestations of type 1 myotonic dystrophy. But I should also say that weakness at the face, the neck, the fingers and the ankles, this weakness isn't the only neurologic symptom experienced by these patients. All, we also can see central neurologic issues as well. So patients with type 1 myotonic dystrophy can have some severe neuropsychiatric problems, most notably apathy, problems with motivation, and poor socialization. Neurohumorally, there's also an overall depletion of sex hormones, which explains why we see frontal baldness in men. But we'll also see testicular atrophy. And among women, there's a higher-than-expected rate of miscarriage as well. And given that type 2 myotonic dystrophy has a very unique genetic cause, it's going to have very different clinical manifestations. What kind of things are you looking out for in this condition? Yeah, I think type 2 myotonic dystrophy it just overall is much milder of a syndrome than type 1 myotonic dystrophy. We mentioned already the patients are going to present a little bit earlier in their 20s and 30s. The cardiac disease is actually much less common, although it still can occur. And respiratory issues are also much less common as well. And then we also don't see some of those kind of clinical exam stigmata that we see in type 1 diabetes. We don't necessarily see the frontal balding. And they don't also, fortunately, they also don't have like the neuropsychiatric complications. All right. So you've made the diagnosis. You have a patient. They have myotonic dystrophy. What next? Well, you know, so both type 1 and type 2 myotonic dystrophy are autosomal dominant conditions. So I think it's really important to make this diagnosis for kind of family genetic considerations. Um, there's a lot of counseling that happens in terms of kind of the progression of disease, planning for follow-up, checking lung function and cardiac function. Like I mentioned, eventually a lot of these patients are going to end up needing pacemakers or defibrillators. Those are all really important things to consider. Um, and then medically, if patients are having a lot of issues with clinical myotonia with stiffness, we can treat that with a medication called mexilatine. It's a sodium channel blocker that um, is most often used as an antiarrhythmic, but is kind of also very useful in this uh, muscle disease too. For the majority of these genetic conditions that we're managing in neurology, it seems like a lot of the care is really supportive. There's no way to actually fix the underlying genetic condition. So what other multidisciplinary interventions may benefit patients and what do we know about this? Yeah, that is definitely true for a lot of genetic conditions in neurology at this point. A lot of um, the treatment is supportive care. But excitingly, um, there actually was just a major clinical trial published in Lancet Neurology in August of 2018 that specifically was targeting the neuropsychiatric manifestations of type 1 myotonic dystrophy and that excessive daytime sleepiness too. The Optimistic Trial. Throughout Europe from 2014 to 2015, investigators of the Optimistic Trial randomized adult patients with genetically confirmed type 1 myotonic dystrophy who were severely fatigued to cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and optional graded exercise or just routine standard of care over a 10-month period. 
A quarter of the treatment arm agreed to that graded exercise and 74% didn't. And then after the study period, patients were assessed for social participation, energy, and other subjective measures. A common metric used in trials of patients with type 1 myotonic dystrophy and the primary outcome metric in the optimistic trial was the type 1 myotonic dystrophy active C, which is a scale that measures activity and participation of the patient. In the trial, scores for the type 1 myotonic dystrophy active C were slightly better in the treatment arm, whereas in the patients randomized to standard of care, these patients scored significantly worse by 10 months. So in a nutshell, having the cognitive behavioral therapy didn't seem to make patients any worse, and it probably made them feel a little bit more engaged. But if you didn't get CBT, you definitely worsened over time. I know that I'm not an expert at managing patients who have myotonic dystrophy, but when I came across these results, I thought that it stood to reason that for a condition where few treatment options do exist, and fatigue and apathy are very common complaints, cognitive behavioral therapy, according to the optimistic investigators, may reanimate these patients' interests, probably revitalize their spirits, and maybe even permit them to lead more productive and energetic lives. And additionally, more exciting therapies are in the pipeline for myotonic dystrophy as well, which includes some small molecule inhibitors aimed at inhibiting the trinucleotide repeats, mTOR pathway inhibitors like rapamycin, and antisense oligonucleotides, which I know Dr. Arati discussed in the episode on HD a few weeks ago. Those should be used to silence the DMPK or the CNBP genes, and they've actually been shown already to be effective in animal models. And while many of these and other novel therapeutics are still in their clinical infancy, I think we do have reasons to be optimistic about these patients. Sorry about the pun there. The Brainwaves Podcast is produced at a Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Jim Siegler, senior producer. This episode was also produced by Dr. Noah Levinson. Music for this week's program was courtesy of Yishwa, Steve Combs, MMFFF, and Scott Holmes under a Creative Commons license. Sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeon. For more information, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at Brainwaves Audio, or email us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show or about anything else that we've put out in the past. Always trying to improve what we're doing here. I'm Jim Seeger for Brainwaves. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.